Uh, good evening uh, and welcome. Uh, if you would turn to your Bibles in Galatians chapter 5, that's where we'll be most of the evening. Galatians 5, 13 through 16, as well as we'll also be in the book of Romans. It is uh, an honor and a privilege and a responsibility that I don't take lightly being able to stand up here and share the word with you. And I can assure you of one thing, that you will hear the word and the word will change you. Regardless of what words I say, the Bible is true and genuine and real and changes people. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't have this opportunity, because I don't get it very often, to just say a few words uh, about our pastors here, because I did have the privilege of spending some good time with them this past week, and, uh, and it was enjoyable, very enjoyable, and a great learning experience for me. I benefited greatly from it, and it really helped me to remember, I was reminded of the blessing that we have with our pastors. Pastor Trey has been here for just over a year with his family, and it's been tremendous and amazing to have him. He's been a support to the pastor. He's been a support to this congregation. He's helped this congregation grow. Lee has done a tremendous job herself in also supporting Angela and contributing at every level, and we've been blessed by their daughters as well in the ministry that they performed. Very thankful for them. Please be remember, uh, please remember that. Please remember how appreciative we should be for the pastors that we have. And for Pastor King, uh, it has been a, a great time for me of getting an opportunity to get to know him better over the last couple years. The first two years, uh, I think we, we didn't get each other entirely. <laughs> he certainly didn't get me entirely. But uh, I can tell you over the last two years, it's been really a tremendous relationship and friendship that's grown. And, and I love the King family. Uh, and I think that if you're here in this congregation, probably in some manner or another, they have reached you and they have touched you, whether it's been a meal, whether it's been prayer, whether it's been a note of encouragement. In some manner or another, if you're a member of this congregation or even a frequent visitor, the King family has blessed you. And we should remember that. Let's not forget that the success of this church is based on one thing and one thing alone, and that is the favor and sovereignty of God. But he needs faithful followers, and he needs faithful leaders, and we are grateful to have the leaders that we have of this congregation. So let me open up with a word of prayer before we get into the message. Father God, it is a, a true privilege to be here and, and to be able to share your truth. God, and it is your truth that will be preached tonight, God, and that's what's most important. And I ask, God, that you will use it. I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict as necessary. And I ask, God, that you will be glorified in whatever is shared here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you've never heard the phrase red line before, it is most often referenced in the diplomatic or the political arenas. And its purpose is to find an acceptable level of behavior levied usually against one nation or a group of nations saying, we are putting you on notice that your actions must not exceed this line, these parameters that we put into place. We are letting you know ahead of time, don't cross the red line. Red lines are designed to have consequences when crossed. That's why they're there. These red lines have occurred throughout history, most recently in the conflict between U Ukraine and Russia. Vladimir Putin issued a red line to NATO. Hey, 
Don't you come in here and don't be involved in this conflict. This is none of your business. Sometimes it's, hey, stay out or else, and the else is not necessarily defined. It's kind of obscure, and sometimes it's very clearly defined. This is what's going to happen to you if you decide to ignore this red line. One of the more famous red lines in U.S. history occurred in 2012 uh, when the president issued a red line against Syria and its leadership in its use of chemical weapons. That particular red line was crossed the following year. But instead of following through with military action, the U.S. reconsidered and they found an alternative means of addressing the violation, which reinforced that if there aren't consequences, the red line is irrelevant. Red lines without ramifications are just empty threats. There's an altogether different red line that some of us in the military know. It's a red line drawn on the airfield at Air Force bases. We don't have these red lines at Marine bases, so I wasn't real familiar with them, but I learned about them rather quickly after joining the military. Uh, these red lines are designed for the security of the aircraft, so they just funnel everybody into a single entry and exit point so that everybody they know exactly where they're going, and security can keep an eye on people. Should you cross that red line, though, bad things may happen. Uh, when I was a, a young lieutenant, we had a captain, a uh, Marine captain, who was flying in the back of a helicopter. He was not piloting. He was in the back as a passenger. And they had a very treacherous flight. It was very dangerous, actually, and they were very thankful to be on the ground. He was so thankful that when he got out of the helicopter, he started running. Well, he crossed one of these red lines because they happened to be in an Air Force base. And then within seconds found himself face down on the pavement because the security did not like him crossing the red line. So he found out very quickly that red lines are not to be crossed at Air Force bases. But did you know that there's a thin red line that exists for Christians? Much like the diplomatic red line, it's not something painted on the ground. There is no visible divide. But just like the Marine at, Air, at the Air Force base who crossed it, and immediately experience the pain of a knee to his back. We cross that line and there is absolutely a penalty, but it is far more severe than physical pain, and it has greater repercussions. That penalty is death, and that thin red line denotes sin. The line is the moment you sin, and it's often difficult to identify because we can't always see it or know it, but we can easily cross it. And the color is red, and that's appropriate, because as soon as it is crossed, blood is shed. But it's not our blood. We as Christians are well aware that we rely upon the blood of Jesus Christ, who died for the payment of that sin. So with that as our backdrop, we must be reminded that God has granted Christians freedom through Jesus Christ. So let us now look at our passage this evening, and listen now as I read the word of God. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye, that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh." Paul, in verses 2 through 12, addresses the specific issue of circumcision, a point of contention within the church. Uh, but in this earlier section, Paul introduces Christian freedom. And if we look back at verse 1, 
It says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul is encouraging the believers in the churches of Galatia not to forget their freedom in Christ. Don't return to the sins of your past. We have freedom, but not freedom for the flesh, but freedom to serve Jesus Christ. John 8, 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Paul makes it crystal clear that it is not freedom to sin, but rather freedom from sin. And if you would turn to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 16 to 18. And I could really just read this entire chapter, because it's all certainly relevant to what we're talking about tonight. But we'll focus on verses 16 to 18 which presents a powerful truth for every Christian to know. And Paul makes it very simple for us to grasp. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. We are free from being slaves to bondage of sin, and we now have become slaves of righteousness. There are only two options, and that's it. If you're not a believer, you don't even have that option. You're a bondage to sin. Whether you want to believe it, whether you want to admit it, whether you want to deny it, You're in bondage to sin. You're a slave to sin. But Christians have the privilege of being slaves to righteousness. You were servants of sin, but no longer. And you don't have to foolishly pursue the things of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16. You need only pursue your Savior. We must not use our freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. Every day we make decisions, and those decisions should be driving us further from the flesh so that we become more Christ-like. Really, isn't this a sanctification process, to become more Christ-like in our life? We should be striving to be more holy. Would that not drive us further from the red line rather than closer to it? The commandments are clear. What is forbidden is clear in the Bible. It's straightforward so that many of us understand it. We need only look at two verses a little bit further in chapter Galatians 5, 19 to 21, to identify behaviors clearly in violation of God's will. Not to mention the list that were presented this morning of various things that God views as unacceptable and sinful. God wants us to show us these things so we avoid them. He says there is sin. Avoid them. There is no guesswork, and we cannot claim ignorance. It is there before us. But what about those things that aren't addressed? What about those things that aren't in the Bible? And there are plenty of activities, either not specifically listed in the Bible, but not expressly forbidden, possibly listed. Consuming alcohol, playing sports, attire, video games, entertainment mediums, gambling, just to list a few. And if afforded the opportunity, each one of you could come up with your own list of different activities or behaviors or things 
that you would say, this isn't really expressly forbidden in the Bible. So is it okay? These are somewhat ambiguous. How do we handle questions about the pursuit of those things? The Bible does not call them sin, so what right do, do we as a church have to call them sin? Or anyone else for that matter? And at face value, one might be able to make that argument. But let us consider things in light of verse 13 and the indulging of the flesh. I've worked with youth for a number of years, almost a decade, and a good amount of time was spent with teens. Uh, And there's a constant struggle, and it breaks my heart that we don't teach them behavior in the context of this passage this evening. And if I asked you to guess what the big one was, I'm sure that most of you could figure it out. How physical can I be with my boyfriend or girlfriend? The Bible does not prohibit kissing, so that's okay. The Bible does not prohibit a certain amount of physical affection, so that's probably okay, as long as I don't cross the line and sin. You know, we fail our teens when we allow them down this path. This physical activity is a sad picture of approaching that thin red line, getting ever closer to it while trying not to cross over it. How close can I get without going over? And the sad part is that there are adults that bump up against that line and don't see the foolishness of it. So they certainly can't teach it to our teens. Do not flirt with sin. It is dangerous. Consider Samson. Is there a more glaring case than Samson? God prepared a path for Samson from the time of his birth, a Nazarite to God who would deliver Israel from the Philistines, moved by the Spirit of the Lord. He was ordained to serve as a judge of the Hebrew nation. He was blessed by God. And yet his poor decisions led to his sin and ultimate death. Delilah's questions were a game to him. And it was a game that cost him everything. And he started down the path with each answer. First answer. Bind me with seven fresh bowstrings. Bind me with new ropes. Weave seven locks of my hair in a loom. And then finally he disclosed the truth of his real weakness. And notice how Samson progressed to a response that eventually involved his hair. Again, getting ever closer to that red line. Playing the game. And then we read one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And she said, The Philistines are upon thee. And he woke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself and wish not that the Lord was departed from him. The Lord left him and he didn't even know it. But surely he quickly realized his foolish decision. Samson lowered his guard and he crept ever closer to that line and suffered the consequences. The physically strongest man to ever live in that moment was spiritually foolish and weak. Do we acknowledge that this happens to us more frequently than we care to admit? And our response is, I didn't mean to, it just happened. This is actually a common refrain in the Miller household. I didn't mean to, Dad, it just happened. Usually it involves two of my boys, Grant and Trent, (laughs) because they are most alike, ultra competitive, neither one enjoys losing whatsoever, and when one is on the losing end, 
sometimes there may be some form of retaliation in the physical nature that goes a little too far. I didn't mean to hurt him. Now, having experience here, let me interpret what that means. I didn't mean to hurt him that badly. I meant to hurt him, but I didn't mean to hurt him that badly. And what I have to explain to them in my very calm manner (laughs) is that it really doesn't matter what you meant. It matters what you did. Intentions are fine, but you stepped over the line, whether you wanted to or not. You did not set yourself up for success. You set yourself up for failure. You foolishly flirted with sin. And this is often referred to as considering the cost. Do we consider the cost of our actions ahead of time? Referring back to my previous example of the young teen in a physical relationship, you certainly cannot count the cost in the moment. You certainly cannot make a decision in the moment. That decision needs to be made well ahead of time. You will not be able to. You are not strong enough. The temptation is too great. You must decide beforehand. And we must not think that in the moment we will make a rational decision. Regardless of what the situation is, pick your sin. But instead, we'll be driven by emotion and we'll be driven by the flesh. This applies to any area. Facing a moral quandary today, deciding what approach to take. How close can I get to the line? Let's learn from Samson and realize it's not worth it. God doesn't want you to cross over that line. It's sin, and sin is destructive. But you let your guard down. You think you have the ability to resist. You are spiritually solid. I can handle this. The truth is that the more comfortable we we become, the closer we get to the line. We heard 1 Corinthians 10, 12 today. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And we just read about the city of Sodom three weeks ago and how it was easily destroyed for its iniquity. Let's rewind and consider Genesis chapter 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Genesis 13, 10 to 13. Abram and Lot were standing, surveying the land, and they agreed to go their different directions. Abram deferred to Lot and said, Lot, pick which direction you'd like to go. And of course, Lot being a wise man, opts for the lush Jordan Valley, as I think most of us would. And he sets up his tent towards Sodom. Now, Lot may have been unaware of Sodom's occupants. He may not have known who they were or what they were like. He may not have known of their wickedness. He may not known what kind of men occupied that city, but I can guarantee he would have figured it out rather quickly. I'm sure he would have gone there and visited, realized what kind of people are there. But despite knowing the potential for danger, that was in chapter 13. Chapter 14, we find Lot in the city now of Sodom. 
We don't know how much time has transpired, but he's now within the city. And by chapter 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, we find that Lot is actually a man of prominence in the city of Sodom. He's at the city gate. They know who he is. I can guarantee you that he did not influence them. I'm not sure if they influenced him, but he definitely let his guard down. And he paid for it, and his family paid for it. So, what should we do? In an effort to protect ourselves, we generate rules. This is what you're authorized to wear. You can buy a raffle ticket, but not a scratch-off. You can watch movies, but not movies that take the Lord's name in vain more than three times. You can have two beers in one day as long as it's separated by an hour time. We become the Pharisees. We make rules. And you adhere to these rules. And you become a strict follower of these rules. But you find yourself right back to where we started. You don't want to break the rules. But if the rules don't address your particular area of concern or interest, then you can go right ahead and pursue it because it's about the rules. We do need rules. Don't get me wrong. I'm a rule follower. I believe we need rules as clearly delineated in the scriptures. But we don't need more rules to keep us on track with those rules. What we need is to get our hearts right. We need to submit and stop serving the flesh. That's what we need. The Pharisees strictly adhered to the rules, but then sought to find a loophole in those rules. Now, most of us have heard the term loophole before, particularly associated with taxes. A loophole in the tax law is a technicality. It's the ability to avoid entirely adhering to the restrictions without expressly violating the law. Spiritually speaking, it's the loophole that maintains the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, not the intent. The law says to do this. Yeah, but that's kind of inconvenient for me. It kind of infringes upon my pleasure. James 4.17 states, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth not, to him it is sin. The loophole attempts to override the Holy Spirit in justifying our actions. But when we justify our actions, we become no better than the Pharisees who disgusted God. Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A number of woe unto yous within this chapter from Jesus to the Pharisees. For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. They sought religious piety, through their demonstrations. But inwardly, their hearts were wrong. They were all about the loopholes if it would benefit them. Now, I've spent some time in Israel, and uh, the Jewish people are fascinating. But one thing, they, they're, they're also extremely creative. And one thing they do well is create loopholes because they have a lot of laws they have to follow. So this is one of the, the laws that they still adhere to very strictly. Exodus 35, verses 2 to 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. 
Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitation upon the Sabbath day. Okay, so that last part of the verse there. This commandment is extremely restrictive. If you adhere to it strictly, like many of them do. The issue becomes the creating of fire. Again, something they adhere to today. But it goes beyond just the obvious of creating fire. For example, the Shabbat elevator. Great creation, great invention. It's an elevator that stops on every floor without you having to do anything at all. You just step right in when the door is open and you wait till you have to get to the 10th floor. You gotta go through all floors to get up to the 10th floor and they stop on every one. But when the 10th floor comes and you get out, go on your way. And you say, well, why do they have a, I don't understand the concept of the Shabbat elevator. Why is it, what is it there for? You aren't physically allowed to push the button because if you push the button, that closes an electrical connection. That creates fire in their mind. So that's why you get on and off, and that's how you avoid that. That's the loophole. It's considered work. There's another dilemma, the refrigerator. You think, wow, what, why would you need a Shabbat refrigerator? They make them, Shabbat refrigerators, ovens, stoves. And you think, well, what's the problem with the refrigerator? Well. As many of you know, when you open a refrigerator, there's a light that comes on. Can't have that. That light is a connection, electrical connection. That's considered fire. So what do you do? Well, the night before, you take a piece of tape. You tape the switch closed so that it doesn't come on when you open the door. Or you can buy a little contraption that they make that you can use to, to keep it closed, keep it off. Or you can buy, again, a Shabbat uh, refrigerator that's next level, really, because it it doesn't give you, you know, the, the display doesn't come on for your water dispenser, the light inside stays off, and a couple other things also. And that sounds kind of silly to us, and, and they have a number of other crazy, in my, my opinion, but in, in theirs, no, but mine, crazy workarounds to make sure that they don't violate the law. They go to great lengths to make sure that they're in compliance but they're doing it to serve their desires. They're not doing it to keep the law. Let me give you another personal example. One of my boys has a sweet tooth. And because he is the smallest boy and we really want him to grow, we just let him eat just about everything he wants. But I say, Pierce, I'm putting this candy on the top shelf. Do not climb the shelf. Get this candy or food, okay? You are not to touch it, okay? I don't want to find that you got a chair and climbed up there and got it or anything like that. Okay, then. Some time passes, probably not very long, just long enough for me to leave, probably. <laughs> and I'll find the area disturbed. Something doesn't look right. So I figure I'll go upstairs and check it out. Well, before I get to the trail of rappers, I've already had two informants provide me the information that I needed. <laughs> As if I needed that assurance, but... And I walk into the room and I see Pierce. Uh, he's got this great look of guilt on his face. Every time he does something wrong, he looks at me like... And I said, I don't even really have to say anything. I said, Pierce, I told you not to get that candy down. Why did you do that? 
again, in my very calm voice. And he said, I didn't, Dad. I didn't. I, you told me not to. I didn't. Okay, well, I see wrappers on the floor. I see you eating candy. Something's wrong. Well, well, Blake got it down for me. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but I told you. No, Dad, you said. So Pierce is in a dilemma, right? He wants to be obedient. He really does. He heard what I said. He acknowledged what I said. But he also wants what he wants. And so he found a workaround. He found a loophole. When we do that, what are we saying to God? We act that way with God sometimes, and this is a thin red line. I want to be obedient, but I also want what I want. So how do I know when I'm approaching that red line? That would be good information if I don't want to go over it. Well, that's part of the problem, right? It isn't like it's clearly painted on the ground like at the Air Force Base. I can't see it, but just like when you get taken down at the Air Force Base, you can be sure that you'll know when you stepped over that line because there's always going to be repercussions and consequences to your sin. And there is no ambiguity with God. He knows exactly where your heart is. Before any sort of outward manifestation of your sin, you've already sinned in your heart, and he knows it. Your sin will find you out, and that really is the crux of this issue. We don't take our sin seriously enough. We may be disappointing in ourselves. I mean, I know, I've, you know I, I have a problem, and I'm like, man, I did it again. I may be real bummed out, like, oh, I can't believe that I did that again. But sometimes we don't view sin the way that we should. Are we broken about our sin? Are we broken like David? Psalm 51.4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightiest be justified that thou, when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. I have sinned against you wickedly, and whatever you choose to do to me, you are perfectly justified to do it. That's the way David viewed it. You know, I would say, oh, that was a significant sin that David committed. Sin is sin. Let's not make light of it. Against you have I committed this sin. I want to draw f- closer to God, not further away from him. And we may forget that our sin separates us from God. We don't consider that it leads to death, our own death, were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ. I was reminded when I was listening to the special from last week, listen to these words, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear a mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Have we forgotten the significance that sin's grip has on us? Are we willing to potentially place ourselves in a position where we sin just to indulge ourselves? Have we learned nothing? We're going to become more like Christ. You know, it's as if we walk after the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. And then behind us, we have this trail of personal pleasures following us. Do we really love him like that? Are we really striving for Christ-likeness? 
is that transformation real? Why not leave that stuff behind? We need to fully commit to serving the Lord. And guess what? It's going to require personal sacrifice. There may be things that you used to do that you can't do anymore. And you should be perfectly fine with that. Because there are people that are suffering for far greater than that for the cause of Christ. Well, let's just say you say, you know what? I've really got a handle on this. I, you know, you're not talking to me. It's not a problem. I can go to the beach with a bunch of women. That's, that's not an issue for me. I can walk into a casino, play $5 in the slots, walk right back out again. No problem. It doesn't bother me in the least. I can drink two beers faithfully every single day. It doesn't faze me at all. Well, let's look at the passage. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not that liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay, sure, I agree with that. Love your neighbor. I'm on board. What if your actions lead to your neighbor to sin? Is that okay? Is that my neighbor's fault? Well, he'll just have to get over it. I'm not doing anything wrong. That's his problem. We are forgetting our responsibility. We have a responsibility to deny self for the sake of other believers. Let's look at Romans chapter 14, if you would turn with me there. We could really read the entire chapter of Romans chapter 14 as it addresses the more and the less mature Christian. But let's just hone in on verses 13 to 15. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Paul is discussing the consumption of clean and unclean food. Whether you consider it a problem or not is not the issue. I am no longer demonstrating love if I cause my brother to stumble. Really, what is more important? Is it the self-indulgence? Or is it ensuring that my brother or sister stay as far from that red line as possible? We must be willing to sacrifice on their behalf. Is not their spiritual well-being more important than eating and drinking? Are we leading others to the cross with our own actions or further away? We have a good friend in North Carolina. At least they were there when, when I was stationed there. Her name is Sarah. Strong Christian woman married to a strong Christian man. Grew up a missionary child. She has two brothers. One of the brothers another strong Christian man. Her other brother, a wayward son, if you will, got into a lot of trouble, got in trouble with the law, became an alcoholic, wanted to turn his life around, came to visit them, stay with them for a while, stay with my big sister. Maybe she can help me out. Sarah decided to take her brother 
She wanted to integrate him back into the church. He wanted to get back into the church. He hadn't been in church for a while. She figured, well, I'll take him to a, a picnic with some church folk. That's probably an easy transition, not too threatening. These were not, this is a Bible study group that she attended, not from the church that we attended, but a different one. And when she got there, she was a little surprised because they were serving alcohol. She was surprised and disappointed, obviously. She was even more surprised and disappointed when they offered her brother something to drink. Recovering alcoholic who had not been dry very long. She was frustrated, bothered, and they left promptly. And we think, was that his problem? That must have been his problem. She thought, I'm not going to take him to a squadron event. I'm not going to take him to an event with some people from my work. I'm going to take him to an event where some good, strong Christian people that I know will be there to encourage and support him. Unfortunately, she was surprised. We must make every effort to stay away from that thin red line and at the same time not drive others to it. I do want to provide two points of caution, though. First, I'll say that with many situations, extremes can be dangerous, as you see with the Pharisees, and we must avoid legalism. Their extreme legalism placed greater restrictions than God ever intended. They become more focused on restrictions rather than the intent. They took on an extremely legalistic outlook. And in their efforts to keep from the red line, some people can go too far. And you say, wait a second. You just explained to me, in essence, that I should be as far away from that red line as possible. Yeah, that's right. So how can it be dangerous if I head the other direction? Well, let's consider Jesus in John chapter 5, healing the man on the Sabbath. It's clearly a violation of the law certainly from the Pharisees' viewpoint. It is work. You cannot do work on the Sabbath. So does this attitude please God? Certainly not, as God was the one who was doing the healing. Unfortunately, we may, we may be inclined to do likewise. Anyone who's truly committed to God wouldn't own a television because there's nothing good on television, and it's not good for you, and it's only bad. Well, a couple things. If you don't own a television, that is a great decision. And that's a decision that you have made for your family based upon your personal conviction. But there are some real benefits to having a television too. And we should not condemn those who choose to have one. Again, it is predicated upon your own obedience. Secondly, we are all at different stages in our walk. Let's not be judgmental of the immature Christian because as we mature, we expect conviction and change. But it is not instantaneous. We have all gone through the process of growing and maturing as Christians and we are all still in that process. So let's be careful to judge someone for where they are spiritually because that's between them and the Lord. 
What we should be doing as mature Christians is educating and sharing what the scripture does say to help them make right decisions. We need to extend grace as Christians, grow and mature in their faith. Ultimately, our decisions and choices come down to our love for God. Do we, we, do, we do what we want, like the world? Or do we want Jesus? Obedience is sometimes really difficult. Again, like Pierce has experienced. It's contrary to my will. It's freedom with parameters of doing what pleases the Father. John 15, 9 and 10, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Choose to love the Lord through the demonstration of obedience. That should be your choice. When we fail to be obedient, again, does that say that we love God? We'll conclude by looking at verse 16 in Galatians chapter 5 of our primary passage. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'm choosing to be led by the spirit and not the flesh. I'm allowing the spirit to guide my actions. This is about discernment. Is it the best decision? As the pastor says, is it wise? As opposed to asking myself, how much pleasure can I enjoy? How much can I get away with? How close can I get to that red line? We should be asking ourselves, does it honor the Lord? 1 Corinthians 10.13, whether therefore you eat, 10.31 rather, whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Choose to be led by the Spirit and not the flesh. Submission to the Spirit will always keep us safe from approaching that thin red line. Decisions bathed, bathed in prayer, seeking to know, to know the will of the Father, will always bring honor to the Lord. So I ask you, Christian, are there any activities, pleasures, behaviors that need to change? Are there things in your life that the Holy Spirit is wrestling with you over that he should not be wrestling with you? Have you chosen to completely submit to the Lord and are you willing to change? Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.